the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Good evening, everyone. Well, that's now. That's a bit low, isn't it? There we go. Uh, as Nick said, my name's Gemma. I think most of you know me anyway, but I am part of the staff team here at Belmont. So I work with John alongside the young people, um, and uh, it's my pleasure to be opening up God's Word with you this evening. So over the course of oh, over the course of the last three weeks or so, uh, in this time in the evening, we've been delving into the book of Malachi uh, as we kind of try and gain a better understanding of what um, wholehearted worship looks like. Um, thus far in our series, we've looked at the unfailing love of God. Megan kind of explored that with us before we delved into these more specific areas, looking at things like giving worship with Nick a couple of weeks ago, and then last week, Andrew opened up uh, the idea of faithful worship. Um, as we looked at the first part of Malachi uh, 2. I get to finish off Malachi 2 for you this this evening and take you into Malachi 3 as we think about just worship. Oh, there we go. Um, And what Malachi has to say about worshipping God justly, and I think that is to do with justice and generosity. As I'm sure uh, has already been said, Malachi is uh, not speaking into a time of crisis. Isn't that a lovely little diagram? Um, he's not speaking into a time of crisis and desperation like we see a lot of the kind of prophets speak into, uh, but rather a time characterised by its everydayness. They're out of um, kind of exile, they're in the land, and they're kind of determining uh, what they're going to do from now on. Um, it's a time where life should be getting back to normal, to how it should have been uh, before the exile, um, how it should have been originally, really, but uh, that's not quite what's going on here. Um, This book is written to a specific people. I really want us to make sure that we're remembering that. The Israelites who have returned post-exile at a specific time. So they reckon around uh, 450 BC. Um, And they're living in a particular context and a particular uh, situation that influenced not only their understanding of God and faith, uh, but also the world that they lived in. Uh, And Nick kind of hinted that already, that idea that everything is not their fault. So it's always someone else's fault. As we explore the chapter then, just hold that in mind. Um, of kind of what they've got in their not too distant history and what's going on with them now. In our time together then, we're going to be exploring the two big ways God calls out his people in our passage. Uh, We're going to be considering the ways in which those things are impacting the people's wholehearted worship. And we're going to be thinking about the big statement the Lord makes in the middle of of our passage, which I think is foundational to our worship today. Um, And then we're going to think about what it means for us as individuals and as a body here at Belmont. Let me pray then, and then we'll uh, crack on with uh, exploring the passage in a bit more depth. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the power it has to challenge and shape us, to renew us. We thank you for the way it speaks to us and into the situations that we face. As we come together now to explore this passage, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you'll be with us. We ask that you speak to us as we explore together. Open our hearts and our minds to hear and respond to your gentle nudges, your encouragement. Help us as individuals, but also as one body together, to be open to your challenge. I pray that through what we hear now, you'll shape us more into the people you intended us to be. Amen. Fab, thank you. Uh, So we're going to be looking at Malachi 2.17 to 3.12. Keep your Bibles open or on, uh, just so you can follow along. If you're on your phone, it's a bit of a nightmare because it spans two chapters, so I'm sorry about that. Um, Now, I want to start a little bit rogue tonight. 
so I would like you to do a couple of things for me. I'm going to ask you two questions. The first one, I'd love you to chat to the people next to you, and then we might have a bit of feedback. The second one is just for you on your own. So the first question, if you could ask God one question, you're stood in front of him, you could ask him one question, what would it be? Chat to the person near you, have a little think, and then we'll get some feed responses back. Okay, right, so I would love some feedback because I'm a youth worker and that's how we work. So, um, and also because I'm a youth worker, I'll sit for ages and wait for you to respond. Um, so, anyone want to tell me what question? Yeah, Mike. When is Jesus going to return? When is Jesus going to return? That's a solid question. Uh, anyone else want to share their question? Uh, suffering, you know. Um, yeah, why is there suffering? Why does it happen? Why don't you stop it? What do you want me to do next? What do you want me to do next? Look at that. That's a holy person there. Yeah? Do animals have souls? That's a great question. Yeah. Any other questions you want to fire at me? Okay, right. Next question then for you to contemplate on your own. I'm not going to get you to share this one. Uh, If God could ask you one question, what question do you think he would ask? I'll give you a couple minutes to contemplate and then we'll get going. Okay. Um, now, our passage, as you've told by the reading, uh, involves a lot of questions and a lot of questioning um, on God's side and on the side of the people. But um, our goal today, I think, if that's all right with you, is to try and answer the question, what, does whole, what does it look like to worship the Lord justly? That's the question. What does it look like to worship the Lord justly? And I'd like to suggest that Malachi seems to believe it has something to do with generosity and the pursuit of righteousness. Now, the Lord makes two big accusations towards the Israelites in our passage. The first is that they've wearied him, and the second is that they're robbing him. Neither of them are particularly kind. And although the two are kind of seem quite different from each other, what we find out as we go through the passage is that they're actually linked. So we'll start with the wearying one. Now, personally, I think that's quite brutal, uh, quite a brutal thing for God to say. Because he's saying to the Israelites, look, you're exhausting, you're tiring, you're annoying, you're frustrating. Uh, And why? Well, because you keep chatting to me. You keep asking me questions. You keep talking at me. Uh, When I was younger, I remember my mum getting frustrated at me when we used to go to the supermarket because I would try and help unload the trolley uh, at the checkout. Um, And it wasn't the speed at which I did that that kind of frustrated her. It was the questions that went alongside it. So like, what's next? Uh, Where should I put this? Mummy, um, can this go here? All that kind of stuff. And when she'd had enough, either because we were in a rush or she'd had a rough day or whatever, uh, she, she'd just say, Gemma, let me do it. Gemma, let me do it. And I would get really upset. I'd usually have a bit of a tantrum, because I was quite a tantrum person at the time. Um, might surprise you. Um, and I would say, Mummy, I'm only trying. That would be my response. And then she would say to me, yes, Gemma, you're very trying. Um, which I always thought was a really good thing, but it turns out it's not. Um, and I think that's what God's like with the Israelites here a little bit. See, just like my constant questioning exhausted my mum, Israel's constant questioning of where this God of justice is, where are you, God, what are you doing, exhausted him a little bit too. Matthew Henry writes that, that it is wearisome, weir, wearisome? Yeah. Wearisome. wearisome to God to consistently hear the people either question where the God of justice is or justify their behaviour and suggest that God is even pleased uh, with those who sin. The people are constantly moaning and questioning God and his justness, right? The heart of who he is as a person, well, as a being. Because they feel like those around them who are doing evil are prospering. 
the people are basically a bit like uh, me when I was a teenager. Uh, and they're like, why should I do what I'm supposed to do? Why should I be rejecting all this stuff that I shouldn't be doing? Why should I be a really good Christian and living the way I'm supposed to live if they're not doing it and they're not being smited down? And that might sound a bit silly to you, um, but it's genuinely an attitude that I definitely had in my past, and I'm sure I'm not the only one in the room that kind of has thought those thoughts too. In his response to the people, God is clear that he is not only a God of justice, despite what they might see around him, but that he expects his people to be, a God of justice, to be people of justice too. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows, the fatherless, and deprive the foreigner among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. See, here we see God affirm that he's a God of justice. Rather than being a God okay with sinfulness in the world, he's waiting to put it on trial. And no one's going to get away with any of it. And they can't think otherwise. God himself will testify against those who harm and hurt others, those who do not fear him, and lead others away from him as well. When we look at the world around us, when we see leaders and powers and people getting away with and prospering from sin, it's really, really easy for us to question why we bother. Why live differently? Why seek such a strange and different and difficult way of life just to like not succeed, just when people over there are getting exactly what they want. But here the Lord is saying to his people, those who are newly freed from exile and establishing this new community of God, that this is why. This is why, because justice will come, because that is who God is. And when it does, you want to be on the right side of that. What you do now matters, so hold on to that truth. And let what is to come, not what is happening around you right now, dictate how you live your life. And that's a real challenge for me as a person, like being honest with you guys. Um, I have friends, not Christian friends, who are living their lives in very non-Christian ways, who have everything I want. They have the house. They have the boyfriend. They have all that stuff that I want. And I find that really hard, to keep pursuing Jesus, to not get distracted. It's really, really difficult. You might have heard the phrase, uh, keep, well, there we go, keep your hope in heaven, or, which actually asked Nick earlier, and he'd never heard of this, but I was told this loads as a kid, keep your eyes on the prize in the sky. Anyone ever heard of that? No? Okay. But as cheesy and as novel as these things are, they kind of hold truth, right? We cannot allow the injustices of our world distract us from the justice of the one we worship. Nor can we allow it to kind of seep into our behaviour and our interactions as we seek to worship him. To worship justly uh, is to pursue justice and righteousness despite what we experience around us because we know where our true reward lies and it's not here. We don't have to navigate this alone though and that's perhaps what Malachi is hinting towards uh, in this passage. In verse 1 of chapter 3, the Lord says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. Now it's possible that the people who heard this understood it to be about Malachi, him being the messenger, and the presence of the Lord descending on the temple, something which was yet to happen. However, if we read this forward, which we always need to be really careful when we do, uh, we could perhaps 
like the gospel writers maybe do, understand this message uh, to be about John the Baptist and about Jesus. John the Baptist being that messenger, uh, with the Lord you are seeking being Jesus. Now, if this is true, then in verses 2 to 4, where we read, For he will be like a refiner's fire or a laundress soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in the former years. If we read it with that lens, then we can understand Jesus' role to be that of one which refines and purifies us. So some of us uh, can um, understand the cross maybe in a slightly different way. Jesus dies to refine us, to purify us, to make us an acceptable offering to the Lord. This kind of image is, I think, touched on in Romans 12, uh, where Paul calls us up to offer our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is done through Jesus' death on the cross, through the blood that, that purifies us, but also through the Spirit that transforms us, that makes us more like Jesus, day in, day out. The second accusation, then, comes uh, in verse 8, and it's kind of discussed till the end of our little passage. And it throws up this idea of generosity being a mark of just worship. Deuteronomy 14 establishes uh, uh, this idea of giving God a tenth of what we kind of earn, what we have, as a way of symbolising our reliance on God, but also as a way of giving thanks to the Lord uh, for all that he's given us. Then in Leviticus 27, we see that the Lord sets out um, all, these, all of these things that are set aside for him are for him only, yeah, they're from no one else. In our passage, though, we see the, the people uh, that Malachi is writing to not giving God all that he deserves, rather giving him only a fraction of the fraction that he deserves. A symbol some people understand to be of their weak faith, their narrow desire and their half-hearted worship. The people um, have been overwhelmed by their questions and doubts and as a result have begun to take the Lord less seriously. And this then has been reflected in one of the most contentious areas of our life, our wealth. They may have been going through the motions, making it look like they're doing everything right. They're going to the temple, they're giving their sacrifices, but actually, they're not giving half of what they're supposed to. They may have fooled the people around them. As a community, they may be fooling each other, but they're not fooling God, because he knows. And as we read in Amos, we see it here, that God knows if our heart's not in it. He, can, he knows us, he knows if we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. In denying the Lord all that he deserves, the Lord makes it clear that they're not only denying themselves, but also those around them a blessing. They've brought a curse on themselves. Now, um, it's quite easy to think of a curse as being something like um, the witches around the cauldron kind of doing that sort of thing. But actually, biblically, a curse is just the opposite of a blessing. So if you don't get a blessing, you get a curse. And this is what we're seeing now. He says that they're removing God the opportunity to reveal more of himself to them, more of who he is, more of what he can do. So the Lord challenges them. He says, put me to the test. You give me all that I deserve and I will show you what I can do. Because that's who I am. I am the God that gives abundantly. I am the God who provides all that you could ever need and more. I'm the God that delights in blessing you. But you have to trust me. You've got to put your stake in me for me to reward you. 
See, when we have doubts and questions, like some of the questions we've heard earlier, some of the questions you might have had in your experience, some of the questions that the, the people that Malachi are writing to have as well, we have two options, I think. We can lean into God more, or we can push out from him. When we turn like the people have begun to do here, and push away from God because we don't understand it, or we can't work it out, or we don't like it, we remove, a chance, we remove from God a chance for him to show us something incredible, something amazing, something that rewards the faith we had in him. We remove the chance for God to bless us, I think. See, God has blessings ready for us, but through the weakness of our faith and the narrowness of our desires, we have not got the room to receive them. We see time and time again, through scripture, God rewarding those who lean in when they have doubts. I was reminded of Gideon. I don't know how many of you have seen the VeggieTales version of Gideon, but that was my first exposure to the story. Um, And he's full of doubt. He's full of confusion. He's full of fear. But he throws himself in despite that. And he's unsure about what's going to happen next, but gosh, does God reward him. If we are to worship God justly, then we are to be generous with all we have throwing all of ourselves in whatever God may have in store for us, and however fearful or worried or unsure we might be. By doing that, we're giving to God and his people what they deserve. And it's more than just money, isn't it? We were looking um, a few weeks back, that cost of living series. It's worth more than just money. Paul highlights it's about our gifts and our time, our possessions and our relationships. It's about everything we have and everything we are. And like, full disclosure, that's terrifying. That is terrifying to lay our entire lives down on the line, like Ollie and Amelia did this morning. But as those who have gone before us, those around us, attest, we know it's worth it. We know it is worth it. All of this, though, uh, our, our wholehearted pursuit of righteousness and justice, our wholehearted generosity, our wholehearted just worship, is only possible because of what is written in verse 6 and 7. And this is where I want to come in to land, because at the centre of this passage, we have these two verses which tie everything together. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decree and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. When we talk about God not changing, that isn't to say that his actions don't change, but rather his purpose, his will, his nature. They're the things that remain constant. This means, as Walter Kaiser writes, that the consistency of his own person as the basis of which these decisions are made can be relied on. Anselm wrote that all that God is Hold on, let me do that. All that God is, he has always been. And all that he has been and is, he will ever be. I'll do that again. All that God is, he has always been. And all that he has been and is, he will ever be. God did not destroy the Israelites when they turned away before, and he's not going to do it now. But he's consistent in his offer, that if we return to him, he will return to us. And in what he requires of us, he's consistent as well. We, just like the Israelites then, can be sure of what God wants, then, now, and forever, and who he is, then, now, and forever. And when we hold on to that, 
our doubts all of a sudden get a little bit smaller. If we want to be as individuals and a congregation, that to, if we want to be as individuals and a congregation, practices of wholehearted just worship, then we need to track our doubts and consider the impact that they're having on our worship. So, I've put some questions on the screen, which I'd love you just to have a little think about. Um, I'll read them as well. So as individuals, do we live as those who know they will be judged? Do we live as those who are being refined and purified by the Lord? Do we live as those who trust in God, in a God who blesses all that we return? Do we live as those who trust in a God that does and will provide all that we need? And then I'd love us to think about it as us as a church. Are those questions questions we can answer as a body? Do we as a church live as those who know that we'll be judged? Do we live as those who are being refined and purified? Do we live as those who trust in God to bless all that we return? Do we live as a body as those who knows that God has and does and will provide for all we need? I'm going to let you have a little think about that because I think if we want to be a people who are wholeheartedly practicing just worship, and I think this is what Malachi says as well, that our pursuit of justice and righteousness and our generosity to the work and the people of God needs to be there and it needs to be at the centre of all we do.